lot of the, uh, the funner things of this, this whole conversation about with Olivet and, and the things that uh, transpire. Um, my, my goal up here is just to kind of give you guys an update of what, uh, what has taken place the previous week. We asked last week that you uh, pray for the meeting we, that we had with the bank. We did have a, a meeting with uh, Earlham Bank on uh, Tuesday. Um, Rod and, and Mike Hirons and myself was there, as well as uh, uh, representatives from Olivet, Janet Taylor and, and uh, Jim Strutzenberg. We had an opportunity to meet with uh, two of the representatives of Earlham Bank. Nothing really new came out of it. Janet from uh, Olivet had the opportunity to explain to them their, their financial situation, which as we've talked about isn't good, you know, we're, which is part of the reason we're, we're in this thing to, to help alleviate that, the debt that they have. But Janet did a good job explaining their desire for us to take over the debt on their building. We had a good opportunity to, to uh, give an update of what uh, our financial situation was. We told them about the property that we own and, and the, the options that we have uh, to, to, to uh, either lease or, or sell that. Uh, they asked us to uh, get back some information to them basically regarding uh, the, the, uh, our, the giving of, of the individuals here over the last couple of weeks. So Mike and, and Matt are gonna get that, that information to them. And, uh, it was a good conversation, lasted probably about a, a half an hour. Uh, again, nothing, they didn't give anything to us affirmative, but they were very uh, willing to, to work with us. And uh, as soon as we get that information to them that uh, they requested, uh, they, they seemed to think they could act rather quickly on getting us a decision. So as we mentioned the last several weeks, let's pray about this. This is really obviously a big thing. Uh, pray, pray about the working in the hearts of those guys and, and uh, uh, just see what the Lord has for have for us there. On Thursday night, we had a, another meeting with the uh, committee from Olivet. I think this is maybe our third or fourth meeting we've had with them, and, and uh, just an informative uh, uh, informative time that we can talk about different things. We uh, we talked about the meeting that we had with the bank, and just informing the whole committee, both uh, their participants and ours, of what happened at the bank. And we had an opportunity to talk a lot about what the transition would look like as we take over their building, if this is what the Lord would have for us for us to do. Pretty exciting time. We, we have talked to some people to form what we call a, tran a transition team to come up with ideas and, and opportunities for our congregation as well as our congregation to uh, get together and get to know each other. We've talked about uh, next Sundays was part of that conversation. We talked about also a picnic was part of that conversation. But if you got any ideas, you could certainly uh, approach us with uh, some some thoughts about that. But just an opportunity to get to know those people better. Also had a great opportunity to talk about different ministries that we could participate in. This is the exciting thing. You know, it's 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 important to get the dollars and the cents all lined up. But when you get to the to the the heart of the matter. It's really about the ministries that we could we could do out of out of that building with with their help, and, and again we talked about next Sunday. Matt, uh, Nick's all, all of, has already uh, informed you about that, but we're, you know, kind of where do we go from here? Our, our schedule, as you may have noticed, I think in the in the bulletin, we we've we have scheduled a vote for this for this uh, situation scheduled on on the twenty third. It's in the bulletin today because we need at least a two-week notice. Our bylaws say we need to have a two-week notice to do that. So that is, for now, we are tentatively setting up the vote for, 20, for the 23rd. I say tentatively because we don't have all the information right now that we need to vote on this situation. So, so as we get closer to that and, and uh, we get more information, we hope we'll have enough information to do that vote. If you recall, when we purchased the other property, we had to postpone the voting date on a, a couple situations because we didn't have the, enough information. And that may happen here, it, it may not. But uh, uh, you also, if you can't make it that Sunday, we have, have made uh, uh, opportunities and that uh, you can vote absentee, or we, we will have ballots available, if you recall. We didn't have that available at the last opportunity, but it will be available to be here should that vote take place on, on the 23rd. But another date to remember, we got a lot of them next, next week being the 9th. On the following Wednesday, the 12th, um, we're gonna have a question and answer period. Again, hopefully by then we have some information back from the bank and, and uh, that may alleviate some of the, the questions or the anxieties that we have. So on, on the 12th, seven o'clock at Olivet, 
instead of the, the regular Wednesday night prayer meeting, we're going to be having a question and answer time. So you guys come with your questions, come with your comments, and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, answers to them and maybe answers to uh, what we want to do with our water, Water's Edge property. So it's, it's just a, it's a great opportunity. The, the, these meetings we're, we're having with Olivet, I've told you before, are just incredible times. When you get past the dollars and cents and you're able to, to sit across the table from these guys who, who, and, and ladies who really want to, want to serve the Lord, the, the heart of the, Olive, the Olivet people are incredible. I think about Ken. I'm not sure. Ken's probably 70-ish, one of the older leaders in, in the group. And, and uh, he made the comment to us on, on Thursday night, uh, you know, here I am, as old as I am. I've been His parents, now Ken is in his 70s, his parents started this this church. So he has got a lot invested in, in, in this church and this building and the property. He's an engineer who helped engineer the, the, the building itself. Um, but he looked across it and he said, you know, it took me these, all these years to really understand that, you know, what isn't important is that I'm a Baptist. What isn't important is, is that I'm not a brethren. He said, what is important is that we love Jesus and we choose to do his work. And it's like, wow, that's an aha moment for, for all of us. It was just a, a wonderful time. Also, Sam Webb, he's the pastor at Olivet, uh, had an accident uh, a couple months ago, I guess it was. Uh, he, had, he has some brain injuries. He was invited to come to this meeting so he could be part of the discussion. Kind of sat in the back of the room, not really participating much. But as I was, I was in a, a line of sight with him, and he's just kind of shaking his head the whole time. Now, Sam, still a fairly young man, has to walk in with a walker, all right? Can't get in himself. Uh, he's, he's aware of the situation, but if you had a conversation with him yesterday, he probably wouldn't remember what it was about today. But he made the comment to many of us. He, he had an opportunity to talk to, uh, to m many of us afterwards, but uh, his, his thoughts were just simply that, you know, you know, God is in this thing. He said, if it, if it took this accident to get me out of the way, to allow this thing to happen. He says, I'm all for it. He says, I want you guys to know I'm all in on this deal. And you know, it was, he had many conversations around with the room with, with uh, several people there, but, but understanding that this guy may never lead a church again, understanding he, he's not gonna have a job, but he's in full support of, of what's going on there. So this is the heart of the people. This is what I want you guys to hear is, is dollars and cents is important but it's the heart of the people that we're talking about here that, that makes this exciting and a wonderful opportunity. So next week, be praying for the same things. What are we gonna do with our, with our property at, at Water's Edge? Be praying for the, the uh, banking situation, that we can come up with some alternatives for that. Uh, just be praying for the hearts of the Olivet people as, as we uh, seek to get to know these guys a little better and have an opportunity to worship with them next Sunday. So have any questions later on, you can give me a call, but thanks for that. Alan? Well, that is uh, some exciting news. Um, thanks, Raleigh, for all your, your work to, to help and get that set up. Um, I'm not speaking today, so if you guys are getting, getting worried here, I'm pulling out all this stuff. I'm going to be short, but there are the, in addition to all that stuff, there's another, um, some other really exciting things going on. Um, about a month ago, I shared with you that we have been praying and um, really wanting to add some additional um, guys to our leadership teams, uh, specifically the elder team and the deacon team. And I shared four names with you, uh, Kyle Clarkson, uh, Bob Short, um, let's see, Brent McLaren, I always get put on the spot up here, and, uh, and Kevin. And um, now all these guys are guys that we really uh, hold in a high regard, um, guys that have been faithful, part of Cornerstone. And um, so we, we really have coveted your prayers and, and as you've been lifting these guys up. Um, now, Kevin Cyberling um, came back and said, you know, I, just to be fair to my responsibilities with my work and with uh, family, um, he has decided not to, to take on this responsibility, but we, we love uh, his heart for service and his, you know, his continued service at Cornerstone. We're very thankful for that. So we have three guys that, that we want to introduce as uh, new parts of our leadership teams today. But before I have them come up, before we pray for them, um, I thought it'd be good just to reiterate that kind of one of our core values at Cornerstone and a huge part of, of our DNA is this idea of team-based ministry. This is not a church where we have, you know, one person that is kind of in charge, one person that is making all the calls. 
Um, we recognize that Jesus really is the, the chief shepherd and Jesus is the head of the church. But under that, we have um, a team of, of guys that we refer to as elders. Um, scripture also calls them overseers or pastors. And, and we have this sense of, of shared leadership, team-based leadership. And, um, and we think that this is biblical. In, in Titus 1.5, uh, Paul is writing a letter to Titus, and he says, you know, I want you to go and appoint elders in every town, elders plural. So we see this, as you go throughout Scripture, it continues to refer to elders as, as plural. And so you, you might say, well, who are the elders at Cornerstone? Well, if you look on the back of your bulletin, there's a, a list of the elder team and the deacon team. And uh, as I said, we're, we're going we're gonna to be recognizing uh, Kyle Clarkson and Bob Shore as new elders and Brent Claren as a, as a new deacon. Um, Bob has been serving on the, the deacon team and uh, has been a huge part of uh, the discussions for our facilities, and uh, we really appreciate that. Kyle has been serving uh, faithfully, uh, bringing the word a couple times a month, and, and really using his talents for teaching, and, and uh, was been involved in some talks about just planning and leadership. And Brent McLaren, him and Kara, we've been thankful for their families and, and, and their involvement. They've jumped right in. They've been helping with on the growth team. Brent's been using his, his gifts up front. Uh, so we're really thankful for all these guys. And before I have them come up, I thought it would be good just to read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark as to how we should help uh, pick out these guys. So I want to read, uh, read what Paul had to say. He wrote about uh, this, this office of, of overseer and deacon. 1 Timothy 3, it says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And uh, as we said, you know, we're thankful for, for the words of Paul. And, and these are things that we have been praying about and thinking about. And we consider uh, these, these men to, be, to fit these um, criterias. And we ask for your continued prayers for them, um, that the Holy Spirit would be moving and working in them and using them to, to be a part of uh, what's going on here at Cornerstone. So I'm going to have these guys uh, come up, and as well as uh, the rest of the elders. And we're, we're going to pray and, and commit them to the Lord. Father, we thank you that Jesus said he will build his church. And uh, we also understand that you use people, and we're thankful for uh, for these guys right here and for their willingness to serve. We pray that you would bless them with wisdom and um, humility and um, a passion for, for your word and for your truth. Uh, may you guard them from temptation. May you um, protect their families. Um, God, we're just thankful that, that you call people. You call normal, everyday people uh, to be a part of your work, and we, we commit them to your care, Father. Our Father, we're uh, excited about this uh, as much as you are, that uh, these guys, um, Bob and Kyle and Brent, want to serve you in this way, Lord. I'm sure it makes you happy, and it makes us happy, too, to, 
to see you working in their lives, bringing them up, uh, and be able to um, say amen to these verses, these guidelines that we read that they apply to their lives and their families. And we pray for this congregation that we would support them wholly, fully, and not make their job hard, but make their job easy and enjoyable to serve Christ and serve us, serve this community for the love of Christ and for the furtherance of the gospel, that people would come to know Jesus and come to see him through these guys and through us. In Jesus' name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. Thanks, guys. We're very thankful for them, so why don't you go ahead and give them a hand. Yeah, that's awesome. We're going to take an opportunity now just to worship again in God's presence. And, uh, and as we sing these songs, the offering is going to come around. If you're new and uh, you want us to have your information to get a hold of you um, and just answer some questions about Cornerstone, there's a little tab on, on your bulletin. You can fill that out and put it in the offering as you come around. But let's just take a moment now and, and uh, prepare our hearts to worship through the truth of these songs and, and uh, to give back to God what he's given to us. a wacky spring. I woke up this morning and I thought it was April 2nd, uh, not June 2nd. Um, and what a wacky weekend it's been too. I, especially for me, I had all great intentions this weekend. It was going to go the way I wanted it to go. I found out Friday afternoon at work that I was given tickets to the Principal Charity Classic presented by Wells Fargo. And I was like, yes, I got two tickets. So naturally I thought, I'm going to take my son this is going to be a father-son moment. This is going to be one of those indelible impressions left on his mind. He is going to love it, love it, love it. I get home from work. Daddy's got a surprise for you. What, what, what? Do I get to play on the tablet? No, we're going to go to, we're going to, go to the golf tournament tomorrow. Oh. Oh. Do I, do I have to go? I was like, Jack, you don't understand. My dad, when I was, when I was eight years old, took me to my first... Uh, actually, it was a Champions uh, Tour golf tournament in Indianapolis. A couple years later, he took me to the Masters, and I was able to go, go to the Masters. And so yesterday morning, I'm all still like, yes, all right, Jack, we're going, we're going to the golf tournament. I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. And then all of a sudden, he says, Daddy, I want to go to the zoo instead. It's like, oh, <laughs> breaks my heart. I'm like, man, this was, I, was, I was thinking, this, this is the start for my son to love the game of golf just like his daddy loves the game of golf. But uh, it so happens he would have rather played with the animals at the zoo than uh, watch the old duffers, or not, well, they're not duffers, but the old guys on the golf course uh, play around the golf. But everybody was happy in the end. Jack would have never made it around Wakanda golf course ever. He would have been so disappointed, and I would have been, uh, come on, Jack, let's go. We've got to see Tom Kite. But uh, he ended up having a great time at the zoo, and that was, that was a wonderful experience for him. For those of you just joining us today, we are in the middle, right in the middle of a series on the book of John. We're looking at the book kind of from the perspective, it's a very evangelistic book, and we're looking at it from the lens of, of the end of the book. John 20, verse 31 says that John wrote these things so that you can believe. And so we're looking at that under that lens through our series that we have, and today we come to a difficult passage, one that I think everybody in here is, is more than familiar with, uh, knowing about the story, but I hope that I can bring some application points to you this morning as we look at the woman caught in adultery. A little bit of the historical context. Now, I know I just said that we're looking at it through the lens of John saying, I write these things so that you may believe in him. Uh, but the reality with this passage from the last verse of John 7, verse 53, through John 8, verses 1 through 11, um, there's, there's uh, I'll be honest, there is some contextual criticism here, whether or not this was actually, should be in John's gospel. There's actually some question whether or not this passage was really included in the early manuscripts. In fact, the, not until about 200 AD do we actually find any record of this passage being included 
in manuscripts. And that paints, that puts it, a, you know, 170 or so years after, after the time of Christ when we first see this. In fact, none of the early Greek church fathers recognized it as authoritative in the scriptures until about the 12th century. So it's kind of one of those, you know, it's in there, and in many of your Bibles, you'll see that it, ha- it may have parentheses around this passage, and if you, look at the, if, if you look at any of your footnotes or anything, it'll tell you that, well, the earliest manuscripts did not include this passage. And perhaps it was more likely a, an oral um, teaching that meets the historical veracity, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. It meets, it meets what would need to be included in the scriptures by the way that it was taught, by the way that it was presented, by what Jesus did. And so for that, that's typically why it is then placed into the scriptures, even though the earliest Greek manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts would not have actually included this passage. So with that context, that's what I wanted to, to share a little bit, the context of what we're getting into when we look at this particular passage. I, I didn't want to neglect mentioning that uh, because there is some criticism there, but again, definitely should be included. So we're going to look at the passage here in just a couple of moments, but where we're going to be talking about is the Mount of Olives, and if you see on the map here, just east of Jerusalem is where the Mount of Olives is located. I want to ask you a question, a couple of questions. How many of you have ever changed your mind on a decision you were at one time convinced was the right decision? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever passed judgment on another that came back to bite you? How many of you have ever, now listen to how this is written, because this is not James 1.19, okay? How many of you have ever been quick to get angry, been slow to listen, and quick to speak? Good, I think we're all in the same, we're all in the same boat then. If you would, let's turn to John chapter 8, and before we read these first 11 verses, let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, we thank you for the love that you have for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of second chances. Lord, you are a God of forgiveness. You are, you are a God that heals our wounds. You are a God that takes our sins and remembers them no more. You are a God who declared us righteous at the cross of Calvary. You are a God who desires for us to be sanctified, holy, set apart. You are a God that even when we stumble and fall, you are faithful and you endure till the end. You are the same yesterday, you are the same, to, are the same today, and you will be the same forever. Father, as we unpack your word today, may we rightly discern it, may we rightly uh, contextualize it, and may we apply it to our lives today, and may we understand what it means to be forgiven. In your Son's name, amen. So it goes as such in John 8, verses 1 through 11, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I did not condemn you either. Go from now on sin no more. I want to take us through about four application pieces that may not be exactly what you think of when you read this particular text. But the first point that I want to make is that being right is not always right. Being right is not always right. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at John 8 verses 3 through 5, Jesus, this was kind of a neat picture, because Jesus then was out in the midst of the people. He came in to teach the people. He sat down and began teaching. Can you, I, I just, sometimes I want to imagine what it must have been like 
lots and tons of people around Jesus wanting to come ready to anticipating what he's going to say, ready to hear him speak. I mean, he's changed water into wine. He's fed thousands of people. He's done all of these miracles, and these people are wanting to come and hear him. But not, any, not everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We're not going to go back into John 7, but Kyle left off last week, and the, there were about six or seven verses that we didn't hit, hit on last week. And there were all these questions concerning Jesus. And so that paints the context a little bit. Some of the Pharisee leaders said, you haven't been converted by this man also, have you? You haven't believed what he has, he's had to say. So there were lots of people questioning what he had to say. But we look at these Pharisees and these scribes, and we look at what is their response to the gospel? Immediate rejection. They wanted nothing more than to trap Jesus in the things that he was teaching. I mean, this man was healing people. John 5, the man who was lame for 38 years around the pool of Siloam, and Jesus comes and heals that person. People were being changed physically, spiritually, and these people wanted nothing. In fact, later in, this, in, this, in the book of John, we're going to learn that some people thought he was doing it in the name of Beelzebub, in the name of the devil of the things that he was doing. So what did these leaders do, these scribes and Pharisees do? They went out and found a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. They wanted nothing more than to trap Jesus. Now, it tells us a couple of things. If they, if they went out and were able to easily find a woman caught in adultery, it probably wasn't a very good culture. There was probably this running rampant in the culture if it was that easy to find this woman caught in adultery. Why did they do it? Well, it tells us in the text that they wanted to trap Jesus, but a little bit more beyond that even. If Jesus said that he wanted to condemn this woman to death to be stoned and killed, the Jews at this time were under Roman authority. And Roman authority gave nobody the right to execute or to administer this type of punishment unless it came from the Roman authorities themselves. So if Jesus said, stone this woman, then he would have been, they would have been able to go back to the Roman authorities, these Pharisees and scribes, and say, hey, this man is insurrecting that we kill this person. What do you say to that? Hence, trapping Jesus. If Jesus would have let this woman go and not stone her, then he would be rejecting what the law of Moses had commanded them. And again, these Pharisees and scribes, they knew what the law of Moses said. That he, that this person who was caught in the act of adultery, deserves to be stoned to death. I think it's very interesting. Yes, were they right that this young lady should have been stoned to death according to the Mosaic law? Absolutely. Yes, that's true. That part is, is true. According to the law, yep, absolutely. But their heart was so far away from truth and wanting to do the right thing. They wanted nothing more than to just trap Jesus because they could not tolerate and stand the teaching that he was bringing to the people. Was their motive pure? Absolutely not. Now, we can go back and look at a couple of scriptures, but Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, 22 are very clear that if you're caught in the act of adultery, it is punishable by death. But Deuteronomy 22, 22 says the woman and the man that were caught in adultery deserve death. Where was the man in all of this? If their motive was pure and they just wanted Jesus to answer some questions... Why in the world would they bring just the woman and not the man who was involved in this terrible, terrible act as well? I know that it's clear as can be, they wanted to trap Jesus. But they may have been right about what the Mosaic Law said, but they were absolutely wrong in their administration of it. Well, they were afraid of Jesus. They were scared of losing positional power. Of course, they didn't want to recognize that Jesus was from God, so they just thought that he was this, this teacher who was changing things, and they thought that they could, you know, many times we see in scriptures that people thought that they could trap Jesus, that they could get Jesus, right? We see a lot of scriptures where it says, 
but it wasn't Jesus' time. He slipped away. You know, they wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him, and he slips away. Well, I mean, if Jesus is out there teaching before thousands of people all the time, you'd think they would have been able to stone him. You'd think they would have been able to capture him thousands of people at many times. And yet, he didn't because he wasn't just a human teacher. Why else were they wrong? Again, if they were so concerned about her behavior, where was the guy? Where was the guy in, in all of this as well? To shame this lady, humiliate this lady publicly, to make a point. They humiliated this lady publicly just to make a point. And I think another thing, too, they made a very private matter very public. And we're going to get to that here in a couple of minutes of why I say that. I'm not saying that certain things shouldn't be exposed publicly. But in this case, they, they went and made this lady an example. They did not care. I don't believe with any fiber of my being that they cared about what this lady had done. They cared about them being right and getting Jesus punished by death than to, than to protect or to administer proper judgment. But I, but I also ask the question here, too, don't we do this all the time today? Things that are very private, that we need to deal with. Sometimes there's sin that needs to be dealt with. And rather than privately going to another brother or privately going to a sister, we broadcast it to the world. You know, sometimes we say it's a prayer request, and we know it's not. We know it's gossip. We post something that may not say the person's name on social media sites, but we but we post things out there causing people to wonder. You know, we may not be bringing a, a woman caught in adultery to be exposed publicly, but we certainly bring things publicly that don't need to be brought publicly. And so I go back to the first point. You can be right about things and be absolutely wrong in the way that you bring it forth. And we need to guard against this. We need to be careful as the body of Christ. Well, the second point, and this one's going to get a little touchy, so stay with me very clearly in what I'm saying here. And if you have questions afterwards, come talk to me. But the application number two is, with the right motivation, Christians must execute judgment. Again, the key is, I want you to understand, it's with the right motivation. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were here, they went away ashamed. They went away. They, they came, if you've got to think, there were, who knows how many people were here, but they all had stones. They all had stones in their hand with malice in their heart, ready to condemn this lady. Think about what happened here. Again, maybe they wanted to just get their jollies by, by, by throwing stones, but they all had stones in their hand, ready to condemn this lady. Jesus did something. He wrote in the, he wrote, this is the only time in Scripture we see that Jesus wrote anything. We don't, we don't know what he wrote. It's not even worth speculating because we have no idea what Jesus wrote in the sand. But whatever it was, it pierced their heart and they went away and did not do what they were so intent on doing. They were so intent on doing something and they walked away without doing it. Now, and I understand that in the context, we're talking about non-believers, these Pharisees and scribes who thought they were believers, but they weren't. But I want to I talk to us briefly as, as the body of Christ about making sure that we understand what true judgment looks like and what that's all about. The Greek word, krino, it means to decide, punish, and call into question. And it's, and it's actually used in Scripture in a context that says Christians are to judge, and it also is used in... Scripture where it says we're not to judge. So it is kind of a confusing, a confusing word, but I want to help put it in context. So here's the reality. Outside the body of Christ, we are not to pass judgment. Period. The, body of, the, the Scriptures are very clear that says, you know, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. Non-believers who don't know Jesus Christ are already bound and convicted and lost in their helpless estate that they find themselves in. But inside the body of Christ, we have a great responsibility to ensure that we call into question the way that we live. And so when we decide as a body of Christ 
inside, inside the body of Christ. We're not calling into question condemning somebody to hell. We're calling into question the way that we as Christians are living and say that we live. And by the way, the Greek word krino, it's the same in each context. So if you were to look up some of these, some of these passages that, that use the word judgment, you would see them in there. Uh, Matthew 18 doesn't use the word judgment, but it does talk about the way that you should bring matters before. If, if, you have a, if somebody has sinned against you, bring that matter to them privately. If they won't listen, bring another. If they won't listen, bring, bring some elders. If they won't listen, bring it before the church to expose what's going on. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. This is an interesting passage. It talks about how there are sins that have festered inside of the church. And Paul says specifically in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 5, he said, what right do I have to judge those outside of the church? But don't we judge those who are inside the church? And it's all about the way that we live. Paul executed judgment many times. Uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander were blasphemous in the way that they were living. And Paul said, hand you over to Satan to actually be, you know, hopefully redeemed, if you will. Uh, and again, Hymenaeus and Philetus did the exact same thing. They were rebuked by Paul. A, a, a person, Demas, it said he fell in love with the world, and they kind of cast him off to the side. We, as the body of Christ, we do have a responsibility to make sure that we're living according to what the Word of God says. And we're going to get a little bit more into this as well with what, when we see Jesus' response. But Jesus' response to those that were wanting to throw the stones, he writes something in the sand, and one by one, they put their rocks down and go away. He was willing to be righteous in the thing, in the judgment that he was executing. Application number three. I think it's an interesting one too. You can teach an old dog new tricks. If you look at, again, if you go back to the text in verse nine, it says, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. These men, who were so willing to cast a stone, so willing to execute their rightness against this woman, one by one dropped the stone and walked away. Jesus was able to capture the heart. Now, I'm not here to say that these people walked away believing in Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm trying to say whatsoever. But these people who were so willing and so mad and so angry and wanted nothing to do with Jesus walked away without executing what they came to do. There was a softening. There was at least a moment of a softening of the heart where these people were willing to walk away and not do what they came to do. Look at Paul. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul said that I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief sinner. But because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, I was, shown, I was shown mercy. I was shown forgiveness. And we're going to see in just a moment with the, with the woman, there was an opportunity, certainly an opportunity for forgiveness in her heart, in her world as well. But you can walk away a changed person because of Jesus Christ. I know Barna tells us in his research that, you know, after 13 years old, the, the chances of somebody coming to know the Lord are very slim. I get that. But here's the reality. The scriptures are also very clear. When Paul said, I become like all men so that I might possibly win some. People can change their hearts because of the grace and the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness. There is hope. There is a renewing. And I say that too because every single one of you in here who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ went from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. And there is forgiveness. 
And the last point that I want to share is because I have been forgiven, I must live differently. Because I've been forgiven, I must live, live differently. I'm not going to speculate that this we don't see this lady again in Scripture that we know of, so I'm not going to speculate that she changed her world and gave her heart to Jesus Christ. But it sure makes you wonder, right? This woman who was trapped and caught in adultery, who has a moment with Jesus. Remember, according to the law, she should have been stoned, but remember, that would have gotten Jesus in trouble and things would have been... Okay, so Jesus worked differently. Jesus worked a little differently here. He got to the point where everybody walked away so that all of these masses that were trying to surround and crowd, crowd out and drown out the truth, they all walked away. Jesus did something very simple, writing in the sand, got up, spoke to them a little more. Whoever's without sin, you know, cast the first stone, and they all walked away. So Jesus gets to the point where he has a private, intimate moment with somebody and is able to pour into their world. And now we see clearly what Jesus said. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And this is all we get. This is all we get from Jesus. He says, I did not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. That's all we get. We don't hear a, a oh, I, you know, I accept Christ as my Savior. I accept you as, as God. I accept, you know, we don't get that. But I tell you what, had she been stoned to death right there in that moment when Jesus was talking with her, she would have never heard those words from her Savior. She would have never heard the opportunity of forgiveness. She would have never understood God's grace. Do you think that this woman is going to... I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just think that this woman walks away a changed person because she had an intimate moment with Christ who was able to help her to understand her sin, understand her position, while at the same time not allowing her to go and do the same things that she was doing. She knew she was guilty of sin. She knew that what she was doing was wrong. But Jesus gave her an opportunity rather than just stoning her to death. Where's the gospel? Where's the gospel in those stones, hurling the stones at her? Where's the gospel in the conversation that Jesus had with this young lady? There's a couple other scriptures. John 5. It's the man caught, or sorry, the man that was lame for 38 years. Jesus said almost the exact same thing to that person. He said, go and sin no more, lest worse things happen to you. So it's very, very similar to what he said here. But we've been made for a whole lot more than to just go on living the way that we were. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm sure every one of you in here is familiar with that, where it talks about the new creation, the old has passed away. We didn't get saved so that we could go back to the old man. We didn't come to know Jesus Christ so we could just add him to our arsenal of resources that we have to be a better person. His Spirit comes into us and changes us, that enables us to live differently, that enables us to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, it's an interesting passage. You know, I wonder sometimes what the lady thought, what she felt. You know, maybe she was clinging to Jesus' foot while her accusers were one by one walking away. You know, maybe she recognized this moment and got to see Jesus, you know, saw Jesus' face. And for the first time, maybe understood what it meant to be forgiven. Maybe she understand that, you know, maybe she was cowering on the ground, just afraid, completely afraid. You know, I'm going to get stoned. I'm going to die. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. I don't want to be seen. I, 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 and then realize that everybody's gone. And the Savior the one who has overcome this world, the one who came to forgive sins, cares about me. Personally, cares about me. The wretch that I am cares about me.
So what do we take away from this passage? And I, there's not enough time to unpack everything in this, in this passage. There's so many different ways to go with this passage. And we don't know. Quite frankly, we don't know everything that came about. But we know the heart of God. And we know that he has the power to change. And we know that he wasn't going to leave without executing proper judgment and authority in that situation. When Christ is proclaimed, there's going to be adversaries. But take heart because Christ has overcome the world. You know that's going to be true. The more effective you are in communicating the gospel, the more adversaries are going to come. But take heart because he's overcome the world. While the wicked go about to make a snare for good men, they make a snare for themselves. And these men who were so anti-Christ, anti-Jesus, wound up making a snare for themselves. They came for hatred, and they walked away probably with more questions than before. Just because we're right, if it's not seasoned with love, the message is going to fall on deaf ears, right? I can speak with tongues of angels, I can do all these things, but without love, it's as sounding brass. Sin in the believer must be dealt with and for the purpose of reconciliation. Jesus knew this young lady had sin in her life. There was a very sinful position that she found herself in. And I'm not claiming that she was a believer there, so it's a little out of context, and I'm sorry for that. But the purpose of why we deal with sin in the lives of believers is to reconcile us back to the cross. It's to reconcile us one to another, and it's to reconcile us back to Jesus Christ. And before we're the first one to accuse, before we're the first one, every, almost every single one of us in here raised our hand when asked if you've ever passed quick judgment on somebody and it came back to bite you. If that's ever happened to you, then be careful. Because when you're young, I mean, I have young kids. My six-year-old son thinks he knows the answer to everything. In fact, my wife and I just talked yesterday about the fact that Jack is always right. He's always right. Which means that everybody else is a liar. Essentially is, is what we, you know, and it's one of those where we, we need to break that. We need him to understand that you can't always be right on everything. You have to watch, you have to watch your motives. And, and as we mature and as we age, I'm guessing that you all are in the same boat as I am, that the more closer that I, the more closely I walk with Christ, it feels like the less I know, you know? The more I want to know more about him, the less I actually know. And I'm so grateful that he's covered me with his blood. I'm so grateful that he allows second chances, that he allows forgiveness. I'm so grateful that he's changed me from the inside out. But we need to be quick to listen. One other, couple other takeaways. Jesus was most effective in his ministry throughout his time on the earth, when it was one-to-one or close to one-to-one. Jesus fed 5,000 people. Jesus fed another 4,000 people, plus women and children in both of those instances in the scriptures. He did that many times. But those people weren't grateful for what he did, for the, you know, for the most part. They wanted to see more miracles. They wanted their ears tickled. They wanted to see these neat things he was doing. When was he most effective? The man that was lame walked, go and sin no more. The woman caught in adultery, go, sin no more. I don't condemn you right here, go and sin no more. Jesus working with his inner core of disciples, preparing them for what was to come. It wasn't when Jesus turned the water into wine that made him so special. It wasn't when Jesus fed thousands of people It was when he poured into the lives of people in a relational, intentional ministry. We don't know what happened to this young lady, but we know that he spoke directly to her heart. So how about you? Close with this. How about you this morning? Do you struggle with accepting God's grace, like those Pharisees and scribes? Do you struggle with believing that this Jesus really is who he says he is? I don't want to believe it because I'm going to have to change the way I live. He's going to change my authority if I don't accept him. Or are you to the point, have you ever accepted his forgiveness? You know, maybe you're holding on to something that he's already forgiven. 
Have you listened to his voice recently? Have you allowed him, if you're holding that stone, have you allowed him to make you drop that stone and walk away and realize that it's about him, not about me? Are you going to put down the stones and seek his will in dealing with whether it's sin or other issues that you're facing? Turn it over to him. Yeah, this is a passage, and it's a, it's a passage that, you know, it's a tough one. You know, this woman caught in adultery. It's so difficult. It's so tough. It makes you mad. Why the woman? Why did they do that? Their hearts were hardened. Hardened. And they needed healing. They needed forgiveness. And Jesus provided that. And Jesus will provide that for you if you've never accepted that. There are many people here that would want to pray with you. There's many people here that want to help you if you've got sin that you're dealing, struggling to deal with. There are many people here. Look at the hearts of your leaders. Look at the hearts of our leaders at Cornerstone Community Church. They are so honest. They are so willing to get back right the way that we should walk so we can be most effective for Him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your love that You have for us. Father, I thank you that we as a body of Christ are willing to forgive. That we as a body of Christ are willing to show grace. That we as a body of Christ, Lord, though, at times need to execute proper judgment and discipline that would be glorifying to you. But Father, help us to do it with the right motive. Help us to do it with love. Help us to do it for the express purpose of seeing that brother or sister in Christ be brought to you. And Father, for those in here that may be struggling with, do I know Christ? Do I not know Christ? Do I need Him in my life? Father, help us to encourage them by the way that we live and opportunities we have to minister to their hearts. And Father, as we think about breaking the bread and passing the cup here in a couple minutes, Lord, that was Your body broken for us. That was Your blood spilt for us. We need You. We need the healing that comes through Your blood. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go, sin no more. I pray this in your son's name.